Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. It's the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, advertising, technology, pop culture. In the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with Adweek.com. With me as he is each week is Tim Nutt, our creative editor. Welcome back, Tim. Thanks, David. Uh, we've also got Jason Lynch, senior editor, uh, covering the TV beat. I believe this is the first time we've had you on since you were promoted to senior editor. So congratulations, and welcome back to the podcast, Jason. Thank you very much. We've also got Anya Fernando, projects manager, who helps oversee all of our digital initiatives and editing for the web. Uh, welcome back, Anya. Thanks for having me. It is a uh, going to be a big TV talk day, which is why I love having both of you on. You are two of my favorite commentators on the TV world, so looking forward to that. First, I wanted to uh, tell our listeners that next week is our 50th episode, official episode. We've had a bunch of bonuses and a few other things in between, but uh, we're, we're close to turning one year old. And uh, for to mark the 50th uh, episode, wanted to get your questions or comments or thoughts. Uh, what do you want to know about us, about Adweek, about advertising? marketing, about the future of technology, whatever it is, drop us a note. You can hit us at podcast at adweek.com, podcast at adweek.com, or you can hit me on Twitter directly. I'm just Griner, G-R-I-N-E-R on Twitter. Uh, And we'd love to hear your questions and we'd love to read them on the show. Uh, So any questions you got for us, hit us up. All right, today we're going to be talking about uh, fall TV, the outlook for fall for 2018, the biggest stories to look for and the biggest shows to look for in TV. And so really excited to have Jason and Anya here. Uh, We're also, of course, going to look at the week's best ads. And first, let's talk about the news. All right, well, certainly one of the biggest events of the the year uh, and definitely the biggest event of the week was the Great American Solar Eclipse. This is pretty much a, I wouldn't say quite a once in a lifetime opportunity since we're going to have another chance in about seven years. But I, I believe this is the first time a solar eclipse has passed from coast to coast in the United States uh, since, uh, you know, depending on who you listen to, either before the country was founded or at least back to like 1915, been a very long time. So this was an awesome opportunity for people across the country. And of course, no opportunity is uh, absent from marketers, social media planning, and they came out in a big way for the eclipse. Uh, I was watching the eclipse. I was actually in Nashville for the 100% totality, meaning where it went straight up dark and the moon blocked the sun. Uh, which was an incredible experience. I mean, truly an unbelievable uh, thing to to witness. Um, so I was not checking <laughs> Twitter to see what brands were saying about it. Uh, before we get into that, you weren't. <laughs> no, it's like Why just not? picture me staring at my phone. <laughs> <laughs> my wife like slapping me in the head. 
What is Chiquita Banana saying right now? <laughs> yeah, what, is, <laughs> what is Cracker Barrel saying? Um, so, uh, but first, before we get into what the brands did, I want to hear uh, now, Jason and Anya, were you both at the, the ad week kind of rush out onto the street to, to watch the eclipse through cereal boxes? Uh, I definitely was. Um, my coworker, Jameson, had two cereal boxes prepared. And then um, another coworker had like three different glasses. So we tried looking at it in the office and it was okay. And then we went downstairs to the courtyard and it was just madness. I've never seen so many people streaming out of the building. It was really cool to see. Even though it was a little cloudy, um, we didn't get the totality either, but it was it was like a fun event. It felt like a whole community coming together for something. Jason, what were you doing? Uh, I actually did not go outside. I was regretting uh, leaving the gl- uh, the eclipse viewing glasses that a couple of networks handed out at t- uh, TCA Summer Press Tour, and I just left them behind because I was trying to only take the most essential things home. And then uh, I was regretting it yesterday, so I ended up uh, just kind of following it via Twitter and via TV. Um, so I didn't join the madness outside. The I think the thing that um, surprised me most, I haven't seen a full eclipse since I was uh, a very young child. And uh, man, you just don't see it coming at all. Like if you didn't know there was an eclipse, if no one told you, hey, be ready for this thing and have the ability to look at it, uh, you wouldn't know. You know, it gets a little bit darker. But for us, you know, even in 100% totality, pretty much until the moon covered the sun, there was almost no effect whatsoever. Maybe around 90%, you could really tell a difference. Um, so, you know, I, I really felt for all the folks, which is obviously uh, most of the folks, I, I think the the width of the totality was only about 70 miles. So I was very lucky to be in one of the cities that had that. But uh, that didn't stop the brands, of course, from jumping in. Uh, a few of my favorites, uh, definitely Moon Pie. There was a bit of a war between Moon Pie and hostess. I should give full disclosure. I worked on the Little Debbie account for about eight years when I was in advertising, uh, although they're not really a factor in this in this war. But uh, it was funny to see the snack cake industry <laughs> going nuts on itself. But Moon Pie, of course, really wanted to be the defining uh, snack, I guess, for the, you know, and I certainly saw them all over the place uh, in, in people's eclipse parties. Uh, but uh, hostess had posted the thing saying, hostess has declared golden cupcakes the official snack cake of the eclipse. And Moon Pie just quote tweeted it and said, lol, okay. <laughs> and that was it. And that got 522,000 likes and nearly 200,000 retweets. So not the finest bit of brand literature, but, uh, you know, just goes to show sometimes being willing to poke your competitors a little bit. Uh, it can pay off. Uh, I think my other favorite was NASA uh, had its NASA Moon account and its NASA Sun account, which are its official accounts for news about the moon and the sun. And shortly before the eclipse, the NASA Moon account posted a screenshot that it had blocked the sun <laughs> on Twitter. <laughs> which I, you know, um, speaking of the Moon Pie thing, um, you say it's it's not great brand literature, but they were quite proud of it, and they sent an email out saying, "Hey, check out this awesome response we had to." to uh to host us and it was the tombris group was the agency that came up with the the they're incredibly proud of their law okay so (laughs) there you have it hey man doesn't take much uh what were some of any of you notice any other uh, particularly clever brand responses well one thing i saw was from uh, an auto brand called karma automotive Um, they had they have an interesting car that's called the karma ribeiro 
and it's got uh, solar panels in, in the roof, which apparently help power the car. I think there's some debate over how well it does this. I think it, it powers it for a little while. Um, Jalopnik had a whole sort of takedown of the whole concept on their site recently. But suffice it to say, Karma has has built a brand kind of around, uh, or at least with this with this vehicle, around um, like solar solar energy powering the car, and, and their logo is, is solar-related. And so what they did is they set up uh, video teams at a number of points along um, along the path uh, where, where the totality was happening, and and filmed a commercial uh, along the along that route, and you know it's it's sort of a, a sheet metal with lots of shots of the sky happening. It's not the most revolutionary commercial ever made, but um, interesting interesting stunt and uh, kind of a you know uh, one of those brands that really had a, a reason to be you know tying into the eclipse, uh, unlike uh, say uh, Hostess or you know, Chiquita Banana or some of these other ones that um, really it was a stretch for them to be involved. But uh, I enjoyed Karma's work on that. Um, I also thought Warby Parker did a good job because they were like, yes, glasses were in. They were all over Twitter and the solar eclipse of the heart ad was pretty funny. The, you know, just a weird TV flashback. I decided to celebrate by watching the uh, eclipse episode of Avatar The Last Airbender uh, with my kids, uh, which is an amazing show for those who haven't seen it. Um, But there's this whole episode around an eclipse and the best part is when the eclipse starts, everyone yells, put on your eclipse glasses, like when it hits totality. And then they spend the rest of the full eclipse wearing these eclipse glasses. And my kids are like, wait, that is not how that works. <laughs> That's the one time you get to take them off. <laughs> so we found a major flaw in a, in a otherwise excellent episode of a TV show because uh, they apparently got the whole situation. And it's one of those things where I picture the writers noticing like, after they had already finished the show. Be like, you know, actually, that's the opposite of how those work. <laughs> but so the weird things you notice. That's awesome. Uh, all right. Also in uh, news this past week, uh, we had a great piece in the print issue of Adweek about the future of football ratings. Uh, this was a rough past year for football, uh, depending on who you listen to, for a variety of reasons uh, that we'll talk about in just a second. Uh, but basically, we saw quite a few declines in ratings on uh, almost every type of football show that we had. Uh, so we had the uh, NBC's Sunday Night Football was down double digits. Uh, ESPN's Monday Night Football was two. Fox and CBS both saw single-digit declines on the Sunday afternoon games. And the you know basically this is I guess first before we kind of get into the theories, Jason, tell us a little bit about why football is so important for TV. Uh, well, the, the reason the football continues to be so popular is because it is one of the few events that everybody wants to watch live. You don't DVR a football game. Um, you need to be there while it's happening. So it is one of the the only remaining shows that can reliably track, attract a huge audience every year. And each season – out of the top five shows, three or four of them are you know, Sunday night football, Thursday night football, and the pre and post game shows. So this is the kind of this until last season was the one uh, reliable show that ratings were going up every year. And then, you know, then you had last year and people were starting to panic a bit when, uh, you know, if, if you can't even trust NFL ratings to go up, you know, what's going on with TV? So there were, as I mentioned, there were a few different theories and there have been on uh, why this drop uh, happened. There, some people said it was the 2016 election, uh, just drawing attention away and that ratings did go back up uh, after the election season was over. There's obviously been a lot of negative news around the NFL between the uh, 
uh, you know, frequency of concussions or the political divisiveness around players like Colin Kaepernick. Uh, you've got just the questions of whether it's fading. You know, this is something that's dogged baseball off and on for decades. Is that is there a fading interest? Is it or is it just changing TV consumption patterns? Jason, what is your? You know, you've obviously been talking to tons of industry professionals, and I'm sure you have your own informed opinion. What's your take on kind of which of these or any other theory might account for this? Uh, well, I think most people point to the election as as the primary cause, and I would tend to agree with that. I, I think that Colin Kaepernick had nothing to do with the ratings decline. Uh, I just think that the number of people who were maybe not stopping because of him uh, was a very, very tiny amount. Uh, I think the election was uh, was was probably the the you know the the biggest thing to blame. Uh, you know, ratings did rebound a bit, and I think also on a smaller level. The schedule wasn't as strong for some of the primetime games, especially. And you look at this season, and Thursday night especially is a, is a much stronger lineup overall than we had last season. So I have a feeling that uh, we're going to see ratings rebound this year. So uh, when talking to Linda Yaccarino at NBC Universal's uh, head, you know, basically head of advertising uh, and sales, uh, Sounds like she sees this as just a ratings blip, or at least she hopes it will be. She says the NFL tells us is one of the strongest, most impenetrable brands on earth. Uh, you know, I guess I wouldn't expect her to say much different. NBC has a very vested stake in this. Uh, but does it sound like everyone at this point is uh, all the across all these networks is just kind of cautiously optimistic that we'll see the see it bounce back? Yeah, a- absolutely. All the other execs at the big networks that have a huge, uh, you know, huge investments in NFL, CBS and Fox, they, they really echo those comments. And to, the most telling thing to me is that after this season, the Thursday night football package is going to be up for grabs again. Again, you know, right now CBS and NBC share it, and both of those networks uh, are, you know, adamant that they want to be back in this game next year. And I think that if if they were really concerned about these ratings declines, there may be some hesitation about re-upping. And they both, uh, you know, want want to be want to be right where they are, you know, again next season. Great. Well, thank you. And we will talk quite a bit more about some of these topics, including the Super Bowl in just a minute when we get to our discussion of kind of the fall and 2018 outlook for TV. One last piece I wanted to cover uh, is the agency CPNB, formerly known as Crispin Porter Bogusky, uh, has named a new global CEO. Uh, what's interesting about this is that it's Eric Solenberg, uh, who is longtime head of the Swedish agency called Forsman and Bodenfor. Uh, those of you who are into advertising will know them from such uh, amazing spots as Epic Split, I think primarily one of the most watched ads of all time, uh, where we see Jean-Claude Van Damme do the splits between two Volvo trucks. Uh, Tim, I'm curious just to get your take. Uh, this is an interesting pairing, not necessarily a shocking one. CPB is known for kind of their weirdness. Bo- uh, Forsman is known for their weirdness. They are part of the same parent company, uh, MDC Partners. But what do you think is going to be the impact that he has on, on CPB? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think when you bring in, you know, essentially an outsider to, to run your agency globally, I mean, he's not an outsider. He's he's part of a sister agency, but he has not ever worked for CPNB. Uh, openly admits he doesn't know that much about CPNB. Uh, clearly, there's a desire there for for some fresh thinking. Um, maybe an, an acknowledgement that uh, people, you know, within CPNB. Uh, right now are not, are not the ones to, to sort of lead the agency globally uh, moving forward. You know, having said that, it's not like we're talking about an agency here that's in serious trouble or needs a huge realignment uh, uh, and that they're turning to a leader from outside to do that. CPNB has actually been doing 
you know, pretty good work lately. Uh, Dom, their Domino's account, they do excellent work on that. The craft, uh, craft mac and cheese work is great. Uh, they, they've done some really interesting stuff for Jose Cuervo since taking over that business. So I think this is really more about bringing in a guy who's, you know, clearly, very clearly talented and, and done great things for, for uh, you know, a challenger brand like Forsman uh, over the last, I think he's been CEO there for about 15 years. And seeing what he can do, you know, to bring in that fresh thinking and get CPB to that next level. Um, I don't really know much about the inner workings of the CPB creative department, but as far as Forsman goes, you know, this is an agency that's been around about about three decades, and they've been known for having a very uh, flat organizational structure. You know, the, the creatives who actually do the work are very close to the clients, and I think I think CPB would like that to be the case as well. You know, as it's grown, I think that's become less and less the case at, at, at the agency. You know, it's been about seven years since Alex Bogusky left. And uh, in that time, I think uh, the creatives have, have become a bit more removed from, from the clients, perhaps. And, and there was certainly a dip in, in the quality of the agency's product after Alex left. Um, but it's rebounded really nicely lately. And I think, um, I think what Solenberg is, is going to do is, is gonna, he's going to try to take a strong brand and make it stronger. Yeah, I feel like CPB in the last few years, like in their heyday, uh, to me, they were known for quirky, really in- incredibly innovative advertising, especially around Burger King. Um, you know, in the recent years, they've been more about embracing technology in new and interesting ways, like helping create all these really cool ways to order Domino's, you know, by uh, emojis or, you know, cool new car to deliver pizzas for Domino's, really involved more on the tech side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they've also been creating their own brands. Uh, they, they, they present about that quite a bit. You know, they have their own brand of not tequila. Do you, do you remember what it is? I think it's Angel's Envy maybe is their brand. Um, but uh, you know, they, so they're they're doing some invasive stuff, but they haven't really been as known, as much known for their ads uh, in the last few years. And and Forsman clearly is producing some of the best ads on earth. That's true. I mean, I think it's it's not an exaggeration to say that that CPB practically invented what we know as modern advertising today, which is that kind of media agnostic approach. Uh, it's not a TV spot or a print ad or a radio ad. Uh, it's just a way of making your brand famous. You know, Alex Borgowski was so good at that. You know, everything he made, he would ask, you know, what's the press release on this and why would any, why would people care? And that, you know, every brand learned from that. Every agency learned from that. Um, but as far as craft, maybe... Uh, you know, maybe what Forsman's been doing uh, is interesting to CPB from uh, f- from from that perspective, from the craft perspective of actually getting back to making ads. I mean, having said that, these you know, obviously uh, Chuck Porter is very enamored of, of Eric Solenberg and, and wants to see what he can do. Uh, it, it, it's it's it could be just as simple as as Chuck really liking this guy and wanting him to have a shot at, at, at his at his flagship shop. All right, well, we it is time to move on. We're going to keep Tim talking here by moving on to my favorite part of the show each week. Ads worth watching. Tim, what do you have for us this week? Have a few th- fun things this week. Uh, JetBlue, which always does really strong work through Mullen Low, of course, um, came out with this fun thing called Office Souvenirs. So the idea here is that uh, if you if you're the kind of workaholic who never takes a vacation. Uh, you obviously won't be able to come back with anything if you don't go anywhere. So they came up with some office souvenirs, which are sort of these kitschy keepsakes uh, from 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 your workplace. So there's like a commemorative plate that says, uh, you know, remember those free bagels. There's like a snow globe with a printer inside it. Um, there's a bunch of amusing mugs, one of, one of which says, let's circle back on that. Uh, another one says, I have interesting passwords. So it's really just a collection of, of goofy merchandise 
uh, for folks that uh, don't take holidays. And of course, you know, uh, JetBlue, the idea here is that JetBlue wants you to take a holiday. Uh, it, this whole campaign was sort of based on research saying that we're taking, Americans are taking less and less vacation days. And, you know, obviously that's, that's uh, going to impact uh, JetBlue's business. JetBlue has a whole vacations uh, section on their site and a whole part of their business devoted to, you know, not just booking your flight, but booking your whole vacation. And so, you know, this, I thought this was a really kind of fun way to draw attention to that. And, and it's kind of a cheeky uh, collection of stuff. And the, the products themselves are pretty amusing. There's a there's an, uh, human resources scented candle which I'm not sure what human resources <laughs> smells like, but um, I thought that was pretty amusing. Dread. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I loved remember those free bagels. We have Bagel Mondays here at Adweek, and it's honestly a highlight of my week. So <laughs> that one really <laughs> hit me. I, I love the photo on that plate too. It's the woman yeah. kind of eating, and then there's like a there's a shot of like two coworkers behind her, but they're kind of shot from the ceiling. So. <laughs> That's very funny, and the craft is is really clever here. And they and and you know JetBlue. The thing about JetBlue is uh, all the work they do for from Mullen Low. Um, it's it's so good, and it, and it just it creates an aura of fun around the brand. And that's just such an interesting thing for a you know an airline to do because there's there's very there are very few categories or businesses in the world that are that are less fun than than airlines and, and flying. And so you know over many years of doing campaigns like this, um, they really do. You know, they really have cemented their place as one of the few airlines that likes to have fun. You know, I, th- I think Delta is probably another one. Um, but this this certainly is is in their wheelhouse and really really nice craft work uh, in a, with a humorous goal here from Mullen. You know what? This is uh, this idea of kind of wasted vacation days is a gift that keeps giving, and it comes from uh, Expedia to give credit where it's due. They've been doing this uh, thing called the Vacation Deprivation Study. Uh, and they've been doing it for, I think, well over a decade. Uh, and the reason I know this is because, uh, you know, I'm familiar with this because when I worked at an agency, I worked on this tourism campaign, uh, which, Tim, you may remember called the Five Day Weekend. I do remember uh, where, that. where we went around and we held rallies all over these different cities calling for a five day weekend. It was like this political protest. And, it was, and the big numbers we threw around were kind of ignited by that Expedia research showing that people throw away hundreds of millions, uh, Americans specifically, of vacation days a year. And my favorite part of that campaign was when I, I was researching the hell out of it of just like, you know, the history of vacation. Do we take more or less days now than we used to? And my favorite fact was I did a tally of how many days Congress works in a given year and it averages out to two days a week, meaning that every single week they take a five-day weekend. <laughs> so I ended up turning God. into this whole, if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for us. <laughs> yeah, they JetBlue had a pop-up store. I think they used the same location, honestly, down in Tribeca. I forget the cross streets, but there's a little... Little a little shop there that they rent all the time for these little stunts, and they they opened uh, an office souvenir shop for a day early, earlier this month, and the, the oh, pics man. from that were were pretty funny. I want the one that says "Remember that thing I said in that meeting." Yeah, <laughs> that was my <laughs> totally. favorite. <laughs> totally. And there's a hat with with the you know there's a, a, a two dongles um, making a cross, and it says "Nice dongle." There's a "Don't forget to CC me" hat, which would also be quite <laughs> quite fun. <laughs> So that was uh, good. All right. Well, what, um, what else do we have? Got? Um, we've got Hotwire's new campaign from from the San Francisco agency Heat. Um, Silicon Valley fans will get a kick out of this. It's got Martin Starr, who plays Guilfoyle on on the HBO comedy, uh, who plays this guy who's hanging out in a a very strange um, sort of surreal environment. He's on a couch. He's sitting next to a goat that's playing a sitar. 
and uh, he's talking about time is just a construct, and and, and it's all this sort of trippy uh, imagery and trippy copy. And the whole point is that uh, you shouldn't feel pressured uh, and rushed um, to 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 make it, to get a, a hotel deal uh, through Hotwire because they have great deals all the time. So um, the insight here being that most uh, travel deal sites they do pressure you. You know, they make you feel like you've got to got to lock in a deal today or whether it's 38 specific. other people are looking at this listing right Ex- now <laughs> exactly so um not unlike uh some gym advertising you know which which aims to take the pressure off going to you know the feeling that the people have that they're being pressured to go to the gym uh i think there's a there's a corresponding pressure that people feel when they're when they're on travel sites to sort of you know, secure or lock in a certain deal on a certain day at a certain price, and 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 Hotwire's whole thing now is is there is there is no pressure. So actually, we could listen to a clip of this. So this is Martin Starr um, advertising Hotwire. Time is just a construct of human perception, which means there's no pressure to get a great rate on a hotel. They're available for an unlimited time, always. So book now, or don't. No pressure. Martin Starr's got that great sort of really deadpan. I mean, it's it's deadpan in the extreme in Silicon Valley, and he's only marginally more animated here. Um, but you know, the, the amusing thing to me about this Hotwire campaign too is that it follows a campaign from this brand last year that that was pressuring you that you've got to get a deal before you get hit by a bus. So they couldn't have <laughs> in last year's advertising they couldn't have put the pressure on more, and now they're like, you know what, no pressure. So they get Martin Starr to do it, and, and it, it was well done. So I, I know one of the uh, creative directors who worked on this, Elaine Cox, that he, and so I messaged her to ask, you know, what's Martin Starr really like? Because I'm a, you know, I've been following his his work since uh, Freaks and Geeks. I mean, he pops up everywhere. He's in Party Down, amazing show. Um, Jason, do you have a favorite Martin Starr uh, character of all these? Uh, it's Party Down, actually. It's funny that you mentioned that. I, I've loved him ever since that. Yeah, they, I, th- I feel like he had kind of dropped off the radar between uh, b- between uh, Freaks and Geeks and that, and then we were all just like, who is this guy? Oh, my God, yeah, it's Bill or whatever from Freaks and Geeks. <laughs> um, but... Uh, you know, uh, I, I asked her, and I, you know, not to betray any confidences, but I asked her, like, what is he like? You know, what is he like in real life? And to, to paraphrase, she basically said that Gilfoyle is a longer-haired version of him, of the real guy. You know, <laughs> he is basically just that that dude, which made me really happy because <laughs> that's exactly who I want him to be. Good casting. Very cool. All right. Well, the last campaign I wanted to mention briefly, um, Volvo has some new short films out um, from Grey London. Um, Grey London is actually uh, operating these days as Valenstein and Fat for 100 days um, as part of a tribute to their Jewish founders. Um, but they they have a new campaign out. Uh, they've had this campaign going for a little while. It's called Human Made Stories. It's a partnership with the British TV service Sky Atlantic. And it's basically these short films that that are very very unbranded. There's there's hardly anything about Volvo in these films. They they, they uh, I think it was last year they put out a couple of them, and now they've made a few more. And the idea is to kind of focus on people, human stories about uh, you know resilient folks or people who are innovative. Um, they're short documentaries, so they're true stories, kind of. Um, as I said, about about uh, innovation and the human spirit, which is kind of an interesting thing. You know, it's uh, Volvo likes to, you know, think of itself as catering to that market, people that value those things. So they created uh, a couple new ones. One's called Music of the Mind. Uh, the other one's called Nemo's Garden. Uh, the first one focuses on uh, an English violinist, a woman named Rosie, who 
um, suffers a, a catastrophic brain injury that, that sort of all but ends her performing career. Um, but thanks to some technology that kind of reads her brainwaves and translates uh, her thoughts into, into melodic phrases, she gets to sort of rejoin the orchestra many years later. Very, very fascinating uh, film. And then the, the Nemo's Garden is pretty interesting also. It's a, it's a story of this pretty audacious plan to save family farms in Italy by growing crops on the seabed. Um, which is again, a, you know, obviously a, a huge innovation. They're beautifully shot. These films they were made by uh, the director directors Edward Lovelace and James Hall, who who together operate under the the, the directing name Daryl. Um, and uh, you know, the, the criticism of of this kind of work is that the, it's so uh, obliquely connected to the product that it's almost not branding at all. Um, but I think they're, they're so wonderful to watch um, that, you know, if a brand does this and commits to this kind of thing over a period of years, you know, IBM's done this uh, as well, you know, you, you do start to sort of just intrinsically be known for that, to, you know, be connected to the idea of innovation, um, you know, and, and there is some product innovation, uh, sorry, product integration into this, but, uh, you know, it, it, certainly these are, are not primarily uh, ads, they're more like branded content that that uh, tries to convey Volvo's uh, philosophy rather than their products. And, they're, you know, they're, they're fairly long. They're about, you know, six or seven minutes each, but uh, absolutely worth a watch. And, and, and great stuff from Grey London who, you know, like Forsman, um, they've been doing great work for Volvo. Volvo is just one of those clients that seems to really value the, the, the contributions of a creative agency like Forsman or, or Grey London. Um, I think both both agencies have, have won tons of awards for their Volvo work. And uh, this stuff, you know, while not a traditional ad, is certainly up there with the best work that Volvo's done. Is there one we should uh, listen to? Yeah, we can listen to a little bit of Music of the Mind. That was my favorite of the two. So we can listen to a little clip of that. Music has an extraordinary power to move people. It can give them a voice. It can give them a chance to express themselves. It can be a release of emotion and a connection with other people. I remember the first day Rosie came in. She had the kind of musical look about her that gave us confidence in what she was doing. All right, that's all I got. I think it's nice not to have the branding in your face. And I also like that... It's not like the story ends with, and Volvo was there to save the day. Absolutely. Unlike the um, the Windex ad that you guys, uh, I think, David, you spoke about last week, where it's mm -hmm. like there's some tagline on the end that kind of is a little deflating about how, you know, cleaner glass makes for a better life or something. Yeah. 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 I mean, the, you know, the, this kind of thing is certainly a little risky, I guess, when you, you know, when you commit to putting money and resources into something that is clearly not, you know, intended to, to be a hard sell at all. And it's not even really a soft sell. It's just sort of like a, almost like a brought to you by kind of film. But I think it does work in the long run. And like I said, if you commit to this stuff um, and you do it for long, a long enough period, um, people do start to understand that that's really important to your brand. And, and then they connect that at the point of sale eventually. There, there was one that came out last year, uh, I think into September about, uh, it was Johnny Walker uh, doing a piece about uh, kind of a mini documentary about the island of Lesbos in Greece and kind of their role in the in the refugee crisis and, and how the locals uh, helped all the, you know, a lot of these folks uh, who washed up on the beaches or almost drowned. And I remember at the time I was really skeptical of it. The, the agency Anomaly worked on that. 
It's certainly uh, gorgeously, you know, cinematically shot. But it was one of those things where I was like, I don't, you know, does a booze brand make sense to be like telling me about refugee helpers? It's I felt very conflicted, I guess, is the way to say it. But I will say this, that piece has stuck with me more than almost any other ad I, I watched last year. I think mm. about it a lot. I think the, you know, the they kind of came in after all the other documentarians had left and they were really talking to people in the aftermath uh, and having them recall their stories versus trying to document it all in real time. I don't know something about it, and I and I I always remember that it was Johnny Walker that subsidized it. To me, it feels a lot like this kind of the modern incarnation of when you would see these brands underwriting uh, PBS content, you mm-hmm. know. And I'm sure they still do, but you know, back in the the 80s and 90s, I remember it was always kind of this one brand call out. Uh, but of course, in this case, they're actually generating the content as well. Uh, well, it's it, very, very hard to create branded content that people care about, you know, particularly if you're trying to f- f- focus it on yourself and what you do as a brand or as a company. And so this is the other alternative, right? You you create content about some some issue beyond yourself that people actually do naturally care about. And then you put your your resources and, and your name on it. And and I think people appreciate that. And, and they'll, they're more likely to watch it probably. And uh while the branding is not as overt, I think it does help in the end. Uh, can hugely help. Jason, are, are we seeing branded content spill over uh, of this of this kind? Are we seeing it spill over into the the more traditional TV world in in terms of content creation? Uh, I don't I don't think there's been anything of this length yet. I mean, this is these spots are all you know five, six, seven minutes. So it's hard to take that chunk of time uh, for a linear broadcast and give that over to a single ad. So you know we're we're seeing small versions of this, but but certainly nothing uh, as innovative or ambitious as, as what Volvo put together here. Well, we saw a trend for a while there uh, where, you know, one brand would buy up kind of all the ad slots on a, on a show and, and basically just have their one long form break. I mean, do we still see that at all or has it kind of reverted back to just people still just running a group of 30s? Uh, we're, we're seeing a little bit more of that. I mean, again, every network is experimenting a bit and, uh, some of them are trying to do spots where you'll have a single sponsor and maybe there'll be a branded content bit. And then maybe there will also be packaged with a traditional 30 second spot. So, uh, everyone's still trying to figure out what, uh, what works for them, what, uh, what audiences are most interested in. So, we're seeing, we're certainly seeing that, but this is, uh, you know, what Volvo's doing is taking that to an extreme. You know, it's worth mentioning that um, these two Volvo films are actually running on TV in the UK on Sky, on Sky Atlantic, and so you have the part, you know, you have the media partner on board from the beginning. Um, Sky Atlantic is the channel that uh, actually airs Game of Thrones in the UK, and so. Uh, Nemo's Garden, uh, the Volvo short is actually, I believe it was last night, it aired right after the the episode of Game of Thrones, so presumably had a pretty large built-in audience to check it out, and and then next Tuesday, um, Music of the Mind will be playing. Uh, right after Game of Thrones too, so pretty nice media placement for these spots too. Yeah, I feel like we hear that every year at the uh, with some of this long form stuff, especially coming out of the UK, that it actually does get TV placement time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think I think We Are the Superheroes was a t- was promotional for a TV network, but I remember you know that was actually got to run in its entirety on TV. Yep. All right. Well, it's time to move on. Speaking of TV, we got our big discussion of the week. We're going to look out at fall. We're going to look at 2018 and basically everything there is to look forward to on the TV horizon. So let's get to it. All right, Jason. Uh, man, we have so much to talk to you about. Okay. Uh, we haven't had you on since you were out at TCA. Uh, where, where is that? Uh, was that LA or Las Vegas? Uh, it was in LA. And so you were out there for, lordy, several weeks, right? 
Yeah, two and a half weeks. I think it was 16 days in total. Thanks. Uh, so we will definitely be talking about that. But first, I want to talk about your cover story in this week's issue of Adweek. Uh, is an interview with uh, Lindy Acarino from NBC Universal. Uh, first, let's talk about why her. Why is she so prominent? Uh, why? What made you want to focus such a, a kind of big piece on her? There's a couple reasons. First off, she oversees the biggest portfolio out of any media company uh, between. NBC, of course, and then you know a number of cable networks and several digital properties, and you know the upfront alone, she was responsible for six and a half billion dollars of revenue. And then when you factor in uh, the big sporting events next year, Super Bowl, Winter Olympics, and uh, the World Cup, that number goes closer to $7 billion. And this year, she's going to oversee $10 billion in ad revenue. And there is no other ad sales chief who comes close to that. Uh, and the other big reason is that she's been at the forefront of a lot of uh, major industry innovation. You know, she, NBC Universal and, and, and her the first co- uh, couple of years ago were, were the ones to, uh, to transition to transact across a single portfolio. Adi- initially, originally, all these networks had their own, you know, uh, ad sales people, and and Linda was the one who said, "Well, this is this is silly. If you're Procter and Gamble, you know, you're you're negotiating with." With up to ten different companies from the same, you know, from from NBC Universal, and you're you're leveraging one against the other. So, um, so she she was the one who spearheaded that. Uh, you know, she says at the time she was called a heretic for suggesting that uh, that you know maybe this would be better if everybody you know worked together in a single portfolio. And then in the years after that, you saw all the other big companies uh, kind of follow her lead. So Turner did the same thing, Fox did the same thing, and earlier this. Year at Disney ABC is you know did the same thing as well. So she is uh, you know she she is oversees the 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 kind of the biggest uh, the biggest portfolio, and you know she's also the one who's who's making the biggest waves in the industry. Yeah, there, there's not to make these Game of Thrones comparison, but it does kind of remind me of this idea of like having all these kings in their different regions of these networks and trying to unite them all under one one banner. Uh, you know, it, it can't be the easiest thing to do. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that TV executives of that type have mildly large egos, and she probably had to uh, break down quite a few silos to make that happen. Uh, yeah, she said it was the, the toughest thing that she's done since she arrived at NBC Universal because not only are you breaking down all these silos, everyone is operating on you know different uh, different networks, different setups, and then once you do that, then you also have to take the further step of of merging the linear and digital ad sales teams, which are also separate. So, uh, so it was a long, it was a long road to get from, uh, from where things started to where she is now. Now you obviously talked about SNL. I mean, I feel like you can't have a conversation about NBC and not talk about SNL. And of course, this is us, uh, which we'll talk about in a minute, but you know, how, how, how big it was last year for SNL? Uh, it was a huge year for SNL. It ended up being the uh, their highest rated year in 24 years. And and uh, even though she was bullish on it going into last year's upfront, uh, it was far more successful than she had ever anticipated. She told me in our interview that that she feels like SNL actually, you know, for as, as much as they were able to to much money as they were able to get for that in the upfront, it ended up being one of the year's biggest values. When you think about out how the ratings skyrocketed, you know, far beyond the uh, the election, and then you had the bonus at the end of the year of it running um, a, 
live across all time zones simultaneously. So all of a sudden, advertisers who thought they were buying time at 1130 suddenly had time in, in prime time. So it was uh, it, it was a huge, a huge year for that show. Anya, did you feel like there was a big kind of cultural shift last year on SNL? I mean, it feels like this is a show that has up and down waves of relevance. I do. And obviously, the election played a huge part in that. I think um, it was probably easier when you have someone like Trump to mock than someone like Obama. And I also think people came to it to feel a sense of like, okay, I'm not alone in thinking this is crazy. You know? Yeah, I remember the uh, the the episode. You know, while maybe you could say it was a little maudlin in retrospect, but the one after the election where um, the Hillary character came out and played uh, "Hallelujah" on the piano. Yeah, um, Kate McKinnon. Yeah, Kate McKinnon. Oh, yeah. And uh, you know, it's it's those moments were kind of unpredictable and weirdly compelling, but everyone knew you had to tune in to see what. And I feel like that idea of appointment TV. You know, really, uh, of uh, you, you can't not miss it. You know, you have to be there, and, and that SNL certainly seemed to hit that. Now, Jason, you asked her, uh, you asked Linda about the branded content thing, which I feel like not many people outside of us were really even aware of this or were watching for it. But there was word that SNL was going to be running some branded content uh, that would actually involve some of the talent. Uh, it never happened. We were kind of on the lookout for it each week. What did she say about what happened there? Yeah, so she had a year and a half ago had made this big announcement that first off, and this SNL was going to reduce his ad load by 30%. And then hand in hand with that, it was going to produce several branded content spots throughout the year. Uh, what ended up happening was that um, because after the election, the episodes were as political as they had been earlier on, these plans kept getting pushed because I think brands just didn't feel like it was it was the right fit to, you know, you have have a sketch with Alec Baldwin as Trump and Melissa McCarthy as Sean Spicer. And then all of a sudden you're trying to sell, you know, Verizon or, or Apple. So um, so Verizon had actually filmed a, a branded content spot and it just never ended up airing. Um, I think in part it was really Lauren Michaels, the produ- ex- executive producer of the show, saying, you know what, this is just not a good fit. Uh, let's just scrap it and and we'll try again next year. So so Linda has said that they have not thrown in the towel on, on trying to come up with some innovative brand partnerships. But I think after last year, um, sh- she's taking more or less wait and see what happens. She's not going to announce anything in advance. She says they're working on things. Lauren is still interested in doing things. The SNL writers are still interested in, in incorporating some type of brand partnership, but she's going to, uh, she's going to keep it more under wraps. And then we'll see if there's a, if there's a, an organic spot for it to come in. The, uh, my, my recommendation to them would be to just have Totino's pizza rolls. Just go ahead and be a paid sponsor of the Totino series of fake ads they've been doing for the last few years, which is, Maybe my all-time favorite series of fake ads where it's always like the mom saying, you know, my hungry guys love watching football. (laughs) Well, the other thing that was crazy about last season is that there were, I would say, in total a dozen different ads that I had to check with NBC afterwards to say, is this a branded (laughs) content spot? Like you really like the the Dunkin' Donuts spot with uh, Casey Affleck when he hosted was an example. There was an Olive Garden spot. There were several that really, you know, you if if you had told me that it was branded content, I would have believed you because it was kind of hard to distinguish. Yeah, I remember after one or two of those, I would check in with you on Slack and just say, so was that branded content? You're like, I'm looking into it. <laughs> what a time to be alive. Uh, so as I mentioned, the other big NBC mega hit uh, was, of course, This Is Us. 
Um, you know, clearly she's probably super proud of that. But at the same time, I thought it was interesting that she talked about kind of the the issue they're having right now of supply versus demand, a very high demand for This Is Us. Uh, and she mentioned that that they're facing a supply issue of where to put it, uh, where to schedule it and how to how to make the most of it. What what were some of your gleanings on that show from her? Uh, yeah, there was a couple things here. I mean, for one thing that was interesting uh, from her was, you know, when uh, in, in May of the upfront, NBC hadn't announced they were moving This Is Us to Thursday. Then all of a sudden, two weeks later, they abruptly changed course. And no, 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 it's staying, it's staying back on Tuesday. One of the early reports then was that uh, perhaps Linda had approached buyers uh, with kind of an astronomical price hike for for this is us on Thursday and buyer said no we're not we're not doing that and that's what what caused NBC to retreat Linda said no that's absolutely not the case it was a it was a content decision it was an NBC decision uh, the you know demand couldn't be higher for this is us and uh, yeah I mean they 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 could sell a lot more than than they have last year. Uh, in the upfront when it hadn't even aired yet you know she said they they made the decision to to pull a lot of inventory hold hold a lot of inventory for scatter because they just had this feeling that it was going to catch on and be a huge hit which of course came to, you know was the case this year they had a different approach and they are uh, they were trying to uh, have a multi-platform approach to it. So a lot of times you'll sell, you know, the linear separate from digital. And what she was really trying to do with with uh, with brands this year was get them to commit to every platform that that This Is Us is available on. So whether it's linear, whether it's it's NBC.com, whether it's Hulu, any place where you can see it, uh, they wanted. She wanted the same brands to be there, and she was pretty successful in that. So, so I, you know, she said, "This is us." SNL and uh, and NFL were were the the her big successes for the upfront this year. I feel like they could solve the supply and demand issue in a Walking Dead sort of way, in the way that we had Fear the Walking Dead. They could come up with kind of a spinoff show called "Those Are They." <laughs> I think it'd be a big hit. Oh. It'd be equally. It's grammatically correct. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, the uh, as we mentioned, you spent uh, several weeks at the Television Critics Association Summer Press Tour. Uh, what were some of the biggest kind of points of debate and takeaway? I know we could spend a whole hour talking about that. A lot of, a lot of uh, critics have. Uh, but uh, what, what, what are you going to remember this as 20, 2017 was the year of blank at TCA? I think there were two big takeaways for me. One was it was interesting to me that all of the broadcast networks, and this was not them colluding with one another, they all kind of separately decided that they wanted to make the case that, yes, linear ratings are down, but audiences are watching their shows more than ever before if you factor in all of the different digital platforms and delayed viewing. So every network was saying, yes, you know, here are these numbers, but when you put delayed viewing in, our numbers double, and you know these shows are incredibly, incredibly successful. It's 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 their way of pushing back against the narrative that broadcast doesn't matter anymore and linear doesn't matter anymore, which is true. The other part of that, though, is is you know, you're still not monetizing a lot of these digital platforms yet, even though some some network presidents were claiming that. All of the platforms are being monetized, which is not really the case yet. You know, you still have a big gap between what you can charge uh, for a show when it's on linear TV and what you can charge on digital. So, you know, I think they were making the point though that 
that the viewers are there and once measurement catches up and once we really can figure out how to monetize this, then, then the broadcast networks will be in great shape. So this was them, you know, this summer press tour was them kind of planting their flag and, you know, kind of you know, digging in and saying, we're going to be here for a while. For me, the the other big takeaway was the uh, some networks just having blind spots about major, con- you know, most moments of controversy. You know, the C- CBS is the big one. Last summer, they were taken to task for having a fall lineup that didn't ha- didn't star uh, any any actor of color. Uh, this year, they do have one, but they have no female stars of any of their new fall shows. And we kind of had the, the same the same explanation. Like, we know we have to do better. We'll, we're going to try to do better. But they've said that year after year. And, you know, there's really no no effort being made, especially when you see all the other networks uh, who have really made diversity a priority. So it just seems like a broken record with them where, you know, yes, there was a new network president this year, but we were just having the same conversation and, and uh, they were having the same kind of a defensive response as they did last year. So for them, that just seems to be a big blind spot. The other one was HBO, which, you know, we were talking about Game of Thrones earlier. They decided to rush out this announcement that the, the two showrunners of Game of Thrones were developing this project called Confederate, which takes place in an alternate universe where slavery has continued. Uh, and this announcement just, you know, you have two two white showrunners overseeing a show about slavery. And there was just a huge, huge backlash to that that was handled really poorly. And uh, at, at press tour, the execs admitted like, yes, they could have handled it better, but they're still standing by the project, even though there have been, you know, now weekly kind of social media protests about it. So again, you 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 have these areas where the networks just kind of don't they don't understand what the problem is, and um, I don't know, you know, what, what what's going to change their thinking. But but you know, there there's some stubbornness there that that kind of they need to get over. It feels like there's always just this kind of like let's wait it out strategy with you know almost no other media media type or brands or anybody can really sustain these things the way TV can. And I feel like a lot of that's just the long, long delays in the decision-making of what's going to be on TV. I mean, they just, are they even able to be as fleet as, you know, and as agile as they would need to be to respond to these? Or do you feel like they could be doing a lot more? Well, I think in the case of CBS, they're more than any of their broadcast network, they have a very specific brand that works for them and their audiences. And, you know, probably the the truth is for them is their audiences don't really necessarily care if if the shows that they're watching don't don't reflect what America looks like. So that's why CBS has been slow to make these changes that you've seen the other networks make. And then on the HBO front, there there was a competing uh, project also about slavery um, that from Amazon that apparently they were just trying to beat Amazon to the punch and they really didn't think through, you know, what the, the repercussions of, of kind of this hastily thrown together announcement was, was going to be. So I think in, you know, both cases, it's, it's, uh, the 
there was something specific going on. But there's definitely some lessons there for networks to you know, really take a step back and, and think about you know what the response is going to be um, to some of the decisions that you're making. Well, before we run out of time, I definitely want to talk about what are some of the other – we've talked about a few returning big shows like This Is Us and, of course, SNL always comes back. Uh, Game of Thrones is taking a, what, about a one-year hiatus after this finale, right? Uh, yeah, they haven't announced yet whether it's going to come back in 2018 or early 2019 for that final season. But, yeah, it's going to at least be a year, if not longer. Well, what are some of the most anticipated shows coming back for a, a – especially for a season two uh, this fall? You know, the, This Is Us we talked about, certainly. I mean, I think that that's the one all eyes are on that one. And, and the big question there is going to be – you know. Uh, it seems that most shows that break out in their freshman year, going back to Friends or more recently Empire, you have a bit of a backlash in season two and maybe, you know, the, the ratings go down a bit. NBC is fairly confident that that's not going to happen with This Is Us. Uh, we, we saw some early footage from from the season premiere, which looks great, and and they feel like you know there's going to be momentum continuing to build. So certainly, uh, you know that's the that's the show that there's you know the most excitement about. Also, the Will and Grace revival, which uh, we haven't seen yet because they they started filming literally the day before they sat down with us at press tour. But NBC has such high hopes for that that they've already picked it up. They picked up the revival of Will and Grace for a second season, uh, you know, before the first one has has even begun. So there was a lot of excitement there. And uh, as far as the, the new shows go, you know, it's it's hard to tell that a lot of these pilots are being tweaked, but but I'll give you um, two panels that made me really excited for, for shows and one panel that really made me scared about a new show. Um, the, the, the two shows that seem to have a lot of promise are The Mayor, which is an NBC, a ABC sitcom about a um, – about a rapper who is completely unqualified for public office, who almost kind of runs on a dare and then is is elected uh, unexpectedly. Uh, so that 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 was great, and that that panel actually had a lot of energy. So we were very excited about that. And then also Young Sheldon, which is a uh, prequel to The Big Bang Theory, and it features Sheldon Cooper as. Uh, as a, in the '80s, as a nine-year-old boy, and it has that that has a very Wonder Years feel to it. And uh, the 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 actor who's playing uh, young Sheldon is terrific. He was on um, he was on Big Little Lies earlier this year, and uh, and so 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 those two those two panels made me really excited for those shows. On the flip side, the panel for Marvels and Humans, which uh, ABC is going to be airing next month, and then they also made this mind-boggling decision to release it in IMAX theaters, I think starting September 1st, that one just looked incredibly cheap, which is also bad when they want you to pay IMAX prices to see it in the theater. And then at the panel, uh, the head of Marvel TV was very defensive about the quality of the show when he was called out on it. So that one, uh, you know, if if I had to bet on one kind of, you know, surefire disaster for the fall, it's going to be Marvels and Humans. Yikes. Anya, what shows are you excited about coming this fall or in 2018? Um, it's funny because I couldn't really think of any on linear TV. Um, the ones I'm excited about are The Return of Stranger Things uh, and The Return of the Crown. So two Netflix shows that um, the trailers came out and I got really excited about. The only thing that I can think of for early 2018 will be, you will not be surprised by this, The Return of the Bachelor. 
Yes, after the, uh, I, I was sad you had to miss our, our Bachelorette uh, recap, uh, oh, which yes. I'm sure you listened to uh, with, <laughs> you know, with bated breath. But uh, yeah, so, so that train wreck of a finale for The Bachelorette did leave you excited for a return of The Bachelor? Oh, God, that was so terrible. <laughs> well, it, it made me curious as to who they're going to pick because it hasn't been um, decided yet. And I would love for there to be the first Black Bachelor. Like, that would be amazing after Rachel, who was so great. Um, but, yes, that, that finale was terrible, and it left me a little shaken um, and a little worried that they are going to choose the runner-up Peter, even though he has said that he does not like the quote-unquote process of the show. Hmm. That's probably valid. <laughs> yeah, very valid. <laughs> All right. Well, we are out of time, but thank you both so much, Jason. Uh, I really uh, appreciate you coming on. I encourage everyone to uh, definitely check out uh, Jason's interview with Linda Yaccarino uh, on adweek.com. There's a tremendous cover story uh, and all of his coverage from the TCA. And, of course, just click on the TV video section at the top of adweek.com, and you'll get more Jason Lynch than you know what to do with. Uh, he cranks out a lot of articles. Uh, so welcome back. And, again, congratulations on your promotion to senior editor on the TV beat. Very well-deserved. Uh, thank you thank to you. Uh, thank you to Anya. Thank you to Tim for both coming back. And uh, don't forget to send us your questions if you have any you'd like us to answer about Adweek, about advertising, about any of the things we've talked about. Uh, and we will hit those on our 50th episode coming next week. That's podcast at adweek.com. Our theme music is by Home. This episode was produced by me while Christina Monlos is out gallivanting around the country, but I'm sure she'll be back soon. And please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts from. Those reviews mean a lot to us personally, and they also help new listeners discover the show. That's it for us this week, and we will talk to you next week. <laughs>